0: Hello, and welcome to Fueling the Transition, a series of podcasts from AFRI Management Consulting. My name is Matt Brown. I'm Vice President in the Management Consulting Division at AFRI. And this series of podcasts will be exploring the energy transition and the key themes and trends we see driven by decarbonization, digitalization, and decentralization. With me today, I've got one of our most seasoned experts when it comes to market design, and that's Stephen Woodhouse. Welcome, Stephen.
1: Hello, Matt. Thank you for the opportunity
0: to let me talk about one of my passions,
1: which is our power market design.
0: Excellent. And we've been working together now for a long, long time and worked on many interesting projects together. Probably don't get to work together nearly enough these days. I think it's, you know, it'd be nice to know really what's your you know what gets you out of bed in the morning what's your driving passion when it when it comes to comes to work and then also in your personal life
1: well i'm an economist and i would say i'm probably an optimizer so i'm definitely uh, the glass could always be fuller kind of a person which makes me very uh, dynamic but also perhaps very irritating to work with because there's never a, a right answer everything can always be reevaluated and improved upon so I think it's fair to say that my career I've been with A3 since 1999 and I was a professional economist for 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 6 years before that working in the transport sector eventually looking at aviation emissions back then but I've been involved in market design since the 90s starting with the GB regulator um and then joining A3 as I said in 99 The one theme in the work I've done, I would say, has been disruption. So market design, um, reorganization of companies to fit new market designs. I spent a stint working exclusively on digital matters, looking at digital transformation of systems, including but not exclusively energy systems, and trying to find better ways of doing things has been a theme, and that is genuinely what gets, gets me up in the morning.
0: Very good. So, constantly improving, constantly evaluating, and uh, knowing that there's always going to be a better answer at some point in the future, sounds like that's uh, that quite a lot to keep you busy. And, and it goes beyond that. Even
1: if you think you've got the right answer now, the circumstances will change. So, you know, it it pays to reevaluate decisions that have already been taken because the circumstances that led them to be the right decision may no longer be the right. You know the, the the circumstances
0: for the future. Absolutely, and uh, a long history writing full detailed market rules end to end codes. Originally, I think for uh, for at least one of them was for the Irish market. More recently, in Oman, and then lots and lots of other market design amongst you know amongst other sorts of projects as well. But lots of market design pieces over time. Looking at new markets and the new markets that we need for the future.
1: That's one of the really f- fabulous things. So, you know, I was involved in the team at the regulator in, well, in England or Wales at the time, in fact, taking out a centralized market and putting in the decentralized market that we've had since 2001. But the market we introduced in Ireland that was in force from, I think, 2007 to 2018, we did the very detailed design for, and that was a centralized market design. We then did the high-level design for its replacement, the ISEM, which is a much more decentralized, more compatible with the European um, target model to allow free flow of of energy across borders within the market arrangements. Um, But my my real heart is in decentralized designs, but that's a view I've, I've come to over the years. So we've been involved in the debate in India about whether to centralize their market. We're working in Singapore on a market which is very centralized. The Omani market is a centralized market. And and many of the other markets for which we've had an input have been the more European decentralized models. One of the fun things is we've had freedom to create some of our own concepts. Um, so over the years we we you know we've invented elements of market design. I'm not sure very many of them have been implemented anywhere yet yet, but I'm confident that they will be. So ideas like decentralized reliability options as the form for a capacity payment, or a concept called balancing resource options, which is a way that people can bilaterally take responsibility for reserve products. So, And we're working on some quite innovative markets at the moment for National Grid ESO. We've been working on the design of stability markets and of reactive power markets. So it never stays still, and you know what is the right answer in one jurisdiction at one point in time isn't necessarily the right answer somewhere else. So that's what makes this fascinating.
0: And you know, for those that don't follow market design, I suppose we could say it's it's all about you know creating the rules of the game, how uh, how we how we play the game, and then advising also market participants who are going to be playing the game what they need to do in order to play the game. And electricity markets are, are quite complex constructs. They don't, you know. I'm not sure. Are there any places where electricity markets sprung up by themselves, perhaps in some small way? But at a at a national level, I don't know if there's if there are any which are really anything other than a regulatory construct. Would you agree? I think that's right. I
1: think they started off as being private networks with private arrangements but they the, the you know the critical importance meant that there had to be centralization and i think the most important aspect of electricity that distinguishes it from other things is it has to be consumed at the time and the place well it, it can be transported over 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 place but not over time so you need instantaneous balancing of, of what goes on and what comes off the network and storage is let's say possible but but, but tricky so It is much better to share your backup and your reserve than to have a series of isolated networks, each with their own backup and reserve. Now, whether that continues to be true in the future as we diversify distributed resources, I don't know. But the the value of having a connected grid and then having to have common rules for the use of that grid, I I think is paramount in in electricity. But it's worth thinking about the word market. You know, If you think about an old-fashioned market where people went to meet and buy things that had been produced, the, the, the nature of that market is to meet the needs of the buyers and the sellers at a convenient place and a convenient time and in a convenient format. And we found that if we're talking about kind of traded goods, farm goods, we found there was also need for hedging. So there are markets for futures for pork bellies and so on. But as the buyers and the sellers and the nature of the products that they're trading changes, you know we don't all go and buy all of our fruit and vegetables in a marketplace in the center of a nearby town anymore. We find that the marketplaces themselves have had to adapt um, you know because of the changing circumstances, and it's no different in electricity.
0: and that sort of leads us very nicely into uh, more. Design changes certainly when we talk about the uh, GB market, Great Great Britain market, and it's worth for those that, that don't know. So, of course, the single electricity market in Ireland covers Northern Ireland, so part of the UK, and we have a separate market in Britain, uh, the GB market, as we would refer to it, which you've been looking at quite closely. I think Stephen recently um, as a sort of lightning rod for bringing together a number of uh, a number of uh, market participants to, con- to to look at the proposed changes that are going on. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes. Well, my interest was sparked um, particularly when I spoke at a National Grid ESO event actually on the market for reactive power and stability that we we're working on. And I came out of the geek corner downstairs where we were talking about such things. I was quite taken aback by the strength of feeling behind the ESO's recommendations to move to a centralized nodal pricing co-optimization design. Now, this is the design of markets that we see commonly in the US and in quite a few of the Asian and perhaps Latin American markets uh, that have been influenced by the US design. And When I first came into the industry in the 90s, I was very attracted to these types of model and i thought it was a great idea that you could kind of put all of the complicated problems into an optimization box and solve them and get the right answer i'm no longer so naive um, but that that was really what sparked my interest and as 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 many people know we've done a successful round of what we call multi client studies where we take a particularly thorny problem that you know, one client alone wouldn't want to fund doing all of the work on, and and we got a quite quickly a group of about ten. We're now up to twelve clients from you know a broad cross section of GB industry players who really wanted to understand um, these different aspects of the market design and and how a, lo- a move to a centralized locational market might play out in Britain. And before we joined the dots. The REMA consultation came out, which effectively blew the doors off. We were no longer looking at the formation of prices in the spot market and the degree to which we you know, co-optimize with location and system ancillary services. We were looking at a whole broad range of, of, of issues, including how we trade energy separately from green energy, the possibility of even split markets for those services but looking also at the form of capacity support and the form of support for renewable generation going forward. So we expanded the scope of the project while we were still cooking it up, really to include all of those issues that are, that are covered by the, the the REMA consultation.
0: And the REMA consultation, of course, has been going on in politically turbulent times, and we don't know exactly where where things are going to land. But I, I was struck, I mean, part of Part of what got included, as I would see it, was the Ukraine crisis, gas prices being so high, the impact on retail prices, and this idea that um, gas as a marginal fuel shouldn't be setting the market price for all participants who don't themselves have that as a cost and that we should somehow divide markets up in some way and these split market ideas are in there although as i understand it they actually came from the other end of the story saying that we didn't think we could really support renewables in a market where where there'd be lots of renewables and there wouldn't be gas on the margin so much of the time to support the price but perhaps perhaps you could give your view on this on this question on marginal pricing in in electricity markets and uh, and the sort of political discussions we've had?
1: Well, let me take a little diversion, and I'll come to that. So as we decarbonize our power system, it involves a lot of new types of generation where there wasn't generation before, but also a new types of loads. We're electrifying a lot of things, including at the lowest voltage levels. So there are changes both on the production and the consumption side. We're actually starting to see growth in demand um, in you know, mature systems where there hasn't really been growth as we de-industrialized. So we're moving back to a growth. And in fact, if you look at it, it's not growth in total demand that's the issue. We're still looking at, you know, 2% annual growth, you know, even quite high industrialization e- e- electrification scenarios, two or three percent. It's not radical. It's what we always assumed at one point to be the baseline growth. But it is quite sharp growth in capacity needs. So the first challenge in transitioning to a decarbonized system is location. We either need a lot more grid at transmission and distribution level, or we need more sophisticated ways of managing with the grid we've got. So actually, congestion management at distribution level has never really been done before, and it will be a feature of the future. You won't be expected not to use your EV charger at the system peak—that you know, allowing everybody the freedom to do that when it's not necessary will end up putting a lot of costs. So location, grid build, and congestion management will become incredibly important in the future system. The second issue I'll bundle together is balancing and flexibility, um, or, or let me say balancing and stability. So stability, I might argue, with services that are dealt with by the system operator—they're smaller than. The settlement interval and maybe smaller than the price zone. So, there are some services dealt with by the system operator in ancillary services and other balancing services, which in the REMA consultation are broadly bundled together as being operational issues. But there's also just the kind of balancing of energy um, within the traded world. And for me, that's about getting value for flexibility and reflecting the dynamics of ramping and so on within the day. But in the old days we had one set of capacity that could meet all of the flexibility and capacity and stability needs. Um, you know, basically flexible thermal assets could do all of those. In the future, with the resources we've got, we start to fragment between very, very short-term stability services, um, between kind of within day ramping and flexibility capabilities. The question of do we have enough megawatts to meet the next winter peak. Um, and also the seasonal balance. So if we're ending up predominantly getting solar electricity in the summer and using heating electricity for heating in the winter, there might even be seasonal imbalances. And we need to create some new products around around and value streams around all of these. And then the third disruption is actually commercial. So we've got locational, we've got Balancing and stability. And then we've got the just general commercial disruption as we introduce renewables and zero price, zero marginal price um, generation to the system. And that has a whole range of effects. It pushes the thermal assets out of the system and and they're operating when it's not windy rather than, you know, more baseload. So we start to get conversations about missing money and the need for capacity subsidies, which we've been through that cycle already in Britain. But as you go deeper, you see increasing periods where the price might be zero, because there's just an abundance of renewable energy in locations and at times. And the flip side of that is that although gas becomes an, an, an increasingly marginal part of the system, under our economics in which marginal pricing is is king, the the gas prices are disproportionate to the amount of gas on the system. And obviously at times when we've got very high carbon and gas prices, people start to raise questions about, about fairness of that. Now I'm an economic fundamentalist I think in this I cannot see that you'll get good outcomes by shielding people from marginal prices. If the value of energy or the cost of energy is very high, At a particular time, subsidizing it for consumers at that time ends up triggering them to use more than is necessary. And if there are high values for energy at a particular time, that's also an incentive to produce more if you've got that flexibility. And it doesn't seem to me that in our increasingly dynamic system, characterized by renewable production and flexible demand, that removing or reducing the marginal signals, I don't see how that can give us better outcomes. What we do need to do though is play on the difference between the marginal price, which is what dictates people's behavior, and the average price, which dictates how much they pay at the end of the month. So It is perfectly possible to have the tariff per kilowatt hour to be dynamic and to make a lump sum payment to people at the end of the month to ensure that they're not paying an unfair amount. So that is effectively what the CFD mechanism does. So increasingly, the share of renewable generation on our power system is covered by contract for differences, and irrespective of what the spot price for electricity actually is in the hours they're producing, there's a difference payment. So at times of very high electricity prices. The renewable generators on CFDs don't receive or get to keep those very high prices. They have to give the money back. And that money goes back to consumers. So the CFD mechanism itself is a way of bridging the gap between the very marginal, very volatile and at the moment, very high power prices and the average prices that are paid by consumers over over time.
0: Thinking about the, um, the, you know, the work we've done on REMA, I think we've, made it sort of phase one where we had some qualitative um, response to the consultation, phase two where we're doing some more detailed modeling. What would you say are the, you know, compared to the, what was laid out in the consultation document, what would be our key messages coming back on that document?
1: Well, the messages are really that we haven't found a justification for a very radical um, move away from the status quo. So The areas that we've considered are how we organize our energy markets, which includes flexibility but also location and operational issues. We've also then looked at um, mechanisms for support for capacity and perhaps flexibility and for the enduring support for renewables. So we've broadly tracked the, the REMA scope. We came up with four alternative straw man models, which are combinations of those different elements. And they range from some relatively minor tweaks to the status quo to a much more radical version, which looks very much like what's being currently proposed by um, National Grid ESO, which is a centralized, co-optimized. Spot market in which there are locational prices for energy, you know, a little bit like perhaps the Californian market, where I think California has ten thousand or so different price nodes, and there'd be a price generated for each of those in each well in each half hour if we stick with a thirty-minute settlement interval. One of the critical um, factors behind the ESO's recommendations to move to a locational price is that. We adopted the connect and manage policy in Britain some years ago probably around 2010 don't know the exact date and instead of having a situation as we had before that where there was just a block on the connection of generation until the network had been built and the deep deep reinforcements were put in place so there was a long queue for connection and we were way behind on our renewables targets um, we moved to a situation where we just connected them anyway and agreed to deal with the congestion management. Afterwards. And although there was an implicit assumption that the grid would get built pretty quickly, in fact, there had been delays on the grid build. You know, I think even Ofgem held up one of the bootstraps at one point. So there have been regulatory and other delays on, on the build of the grid. So we're in a situation where there is a lot more wind in Scotland and to some degree now off the East Coast um, than the grid can actually cope with at times of high wind and perhaps low demand. So we're seeing a lot of redispatch. The connected plants, although they pay a high tenuos in Scotland, that money isn't used to pay for the redispatch. And We're seeing very high costs in the balancing mechanism of effectively turning down wind where there's no grid for it, and then bringing on mainly thermal generation further south. To replace the wind and the costs of that are looking quite alarming.
0: Why would you why would you not use the the tenuos money to pay for the redispatch? Because that would seem somewhat logical to me.
1: Yeah, well, that's something we have talked about within the study. And you know, at the moment the the tenuos is sort of ring-fenced into pots. So in principle, new connections in Scotland put money into the tenuos pot, but it's not used for redispatch because the total sum of money payable by generators is fixed effectively if you if you end up connecting a lot a lot more generation in a high tenuous area you just reduce the tenuous cost for all the other generators within that fixed pot and and it's not totally fixed because if you need to build more grid eventually more grid will get get get, get built because of those needs but yeah i i do think that might be one of the areas we could we could consider a quicker fix
0: looking forward it seems to me there's a there's a potential there'll be a lot more flexible demand on the system and a more, lot more access to flexible demand on the system. Do you think this centralized model is is a good model for, for accessing that? Because I think it's crucial in terms of having a cost-effective future you know, solution that we can access it.
1: I think that's at the heart of my... Um Instinctive preference for decentralized solutions. So, in a centralized model, the idea is you put all of the costs, all of the resources, all of the characteristics of these different resources into some optimization model and solve it and get the right answer. And that sounds brilliant. Um, but the truth is, we don't know the characteristics of these resources. Particularly as we're getting a diverse group of resources, it's no longer this is a CCGT and we know its cost structure and its operating characteristics and we know how to run it. We're talking about resources that are used for other things as well, like batteries or uninterruptible power supplies or you know my 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 car. So there are lots of things that govern how I deal with the battery for my car, but they can't all be expressed in an algorithm in somebody else's optimization model. So, it seems to me that the time has already gone for central dispatch and central operation of what where increasingly we'll find the flexibility is coming from distributed decentralized resources I mean, just coming back to the locational issue in principle, I can only agree with the statement that the location is an important part of the value of any service you know there's nothing you buy that when you buy it, you don't think, well, where is it now? How long will it take to come? Will it will it be broken or lost in transit? And how much will I have to pay for that transportation? So it's absolutely correct that location should be part of the economics. Having said that, we do have quite strong locational signals already in, in the GB power market, both in the, the network fees, which are levied correctly, I think, on generators as well as on consumers. And indeed, on the losses, and I think the losses go up to about five percent, which is a, you know, a substantial, a, a substantial incentive. When we think about location, one of the arguments that we see at the moment is that because the market is defined at a national level, um, the dispatch is inefficient. And actually, I haven't seen evidence of that. The truth is that the schedule that people notify to the system operator in the form of their final physical notifications is infeasible. ESO then takes the balancing offers and bids, and they do have freedoms to trade before the balancing mechanism as well, um, and they resolve those issues, and they end up with a dispatch which is feasible. And Assuming the balancing mechanism is liquid, in principle, they can get a pretty good answer. Now, the reasons why the dispatch might be inefficient could be that people had already locked into some commitments sometime intraday, like either starting a unit or not starting a unit, that by the time we get to balancing, it's too late to unwind. So I could see that there theoretically could be some inefficient dispatch. But nobody's given me any evidence that there is actually inefficient dispatch. And I note again, that the system operator does have some freedom to, to, to actually make, take actions before the balancing window and gate closure. Now if we look at the proposals that we see on the table, they seem to be for central dispatch and a centralized market in real time. But decentralise unit commitment. Now, logically, if it's the unit commitment decisions that are going wrong, you've got to centralise those as well, and you need to actually have a centralised market time frame all the way from day ahead right the way through real time. And certainly, that wasn't what I saw being described um, as a, as we read the ESO's proposals. And this is where I have the biggest problem of all. I believe that there should be value for flexibility and there should be a cost of uncertainty. So if you're a very flexible resource, you should be able to access quite a volatile close to real-time price. And if you're a relatively inflexible resource, you get value for your energy, but not for your flexibility. And the organic nature of the intraday market allows value for flexibility to be revealed in those intraday timeframes. I have not seen a centralized market that has an intraday market. I, I, I could start to dream up how one might work. And indeed, I started a process with Bill Hogan a couple of years ago, where we started looking at a kind of a multi-period, multi-look ahead. I think something a little bit like that is is emerging in California, but this is not an off-the-shelf design by any means. And to do it properly, you don't just need to forecast what you expect demand to be in each hour, you need to know a probability distribution of the demand in each hour looking forward, a probability distribution of the renewable generation in each hour going forward, and an understanding of the flexibility characteristics of each unit. Um, I could dream up such a model, but I don't think it would actually be practically workable. So It seems to me that the centralized view of the world creates as many problems as it solves And I haven't seen a lot of evidence that there is actually inefficient dispatch um, in today's arrangements. So, the key message for me is that we haven't proved the case for a radical shift from a decentralized arrangement where people can manage their own assets to a centralized one in which effectively somebody at the center takes control of the assets.
0: And you said at the start you're always looking for improvement. So, if there's not a radical case, what are the improvements you could see right now that that, that we could put in place? Critical trade offs
1: are around how volatile the energy prices are and how much money we pay around the edges. My personal preference is that you know if you think about what capacity is, capacity is an option to deliver services. It's an option to deliver energy. So my preference would be that the capacity market weren't a top-up payment, it was would be some kind of option. So we actually have really volatile spot prices that reflect scarcity, but people who've sold firm commitments on capacity uh, would effectively, like the CFD holders, have to give back some of that money. They don't get to keep the price spikes. I would like there to be a differentiated capacity market that reflects different strike prices and also different reference markets. So inflexible capacity sells a day ahead capacity ticket, but more flexible can sell an option on the balancing or maybe on some intraday um, market. It could be a physical, not a financial. The support for renewables, we can certainly explore options where that support is extended because there comes a point if we put a lot of renewables onto the system, and particularly if we have locational pricing, that once they come out of their initial support period, they end up receiving effectively very close to zero prices for very large parts of the year. So the residual value might get collapsed. We are certainly exploring a, middle, a model in which there might be extended support for renewables. So you have some kind of CFD mechanism extending beyond. And that's our way of achieving this split market model, where effectively renewables end up earning a long run cost and the overall benefit of that goes back to consumers. I am still very interested by the idea of locational prices at some level, and here we get into the real dilemmas. So It sounds plausible to move to a zonal rather than a nodal market, and there's a question about how many zones and how stable would they be, Um, but indeed, we've been in a zonal market for many, many years there was an obligation to reappraise the zones every two years when we were under under the network codes, the European network codes. And the fact that nobody took that very seriously, well, we got away with it, didn't we? Um, but but we have always been under the, the shadow of a potential um, re, rezoning. So, and, and you could argue that even a national market always has the threat that there will be a locational split later on. So to the extent that a zonal market is inherently unstable where we've been in that world for quite a long time already the real issue though is if you move to a locational market whether it's you know small zones big zones or nodes are you putting risks on investors that they have no tools to manage because in the capital att- intensive future world you know if you if you add risk and add to the cost of capital, that can very quickly outweigh any benefits that you might have in in terms of operational efficiency. And indeed, we don't find examples where investors can lock in to long-term transmission price hedges. So, the availability of those long-term hedges in a locational world, I think is a question mark. And also, as for any other forward trading. The products that we seem to see are baseload, and baseload doesn't exist anymore except for nuclear plants. So the wind generators don't want baseload, and the residual thermal generators only get what's left after the wind has gone. So those forward transmission products are not really fit for purpose for a decent, decarbonizing um, power system. So I'm drawn to the idea of locational pricing. But I'm concerned that the risks that it brings um, don't outweigh the benefits, and there is indeed there there is indeed the issue that we would exacerbate the zero prices in areas um, where there's already a lot of wind and not enough grid. And and as I've said, we have some fairly substantial locational incentives through to newos and loss charging. So. Whether, whether we need additional incentives and wh- whether we will significantly improve dispatch efficiency, I think is an open question. And part two of our study, which we're now going through, is in fact to model these things. And we really want to model you know, the frequency and the incidence of zero pricing and the combinations of that with different locational breakdown of the, of the price areas.
0: It seems like you know, investment certainty. Given the amount of investment we need to we need to bring forward, investment certainty sort of trumps other considerations uh, within you know w- within this overall overall framework. And to make sure we get get investors coming in is more important than a radical change, I guess, at this stage.
1: Well, I I, I think our, our minded to position at the moment is that we haven't made the case for radical change and the risks associated. With it are likely to be far greater than the benefits. But we do still need to look into this space of decentralized markets to figure out where we get the greatest value. Um, And it seems to me that the most flexible resources of all are likely to be, you know, at the consumer side, you know, people's EV charging and maybe their heat pumps. I have not seen locational markets which actually feed down to those levels. And indeed, we're going to see. Distribution congestion, not transmission congestion. And I'm absolutely sure nobody's going to want my street to have a different price to your street when three people down the road turn on their EV charger. So there is a limit to how far it will be politically acceptable to have locationally varying prices. I would fully expect that if we do move to locational prices, there will still be some averaging towards the smaller consumers. And that, I think, is where some of the real benefits might actually come from. And if you if you socialise the cost towards consumers, as is done in most locational markets, many of the potential benefits, I think, will be lost.
0: So, with that, I think um, I think our round our our roundup of the uh, REMA situation comes to a close. Uh, it's been fascinating uh, talking to you, Stephen. Thank you very much for your time and uh, for appearing once again.
1: Well, look out for the report that follows the modelling phase, which we're expecting to be in you know February or March time next year. So we've we've got some tentative conclusions based on qualitative analysis, and we're hoping to to model as far as these things can be modelled to see if we can either justify or have to change the conclusions that we that we, that we came to in, in part one. And we continue in, to engage actively with um, we've, we've 12 members of the study, and we, we we're always welcoming more if you want to get a deeper insight. But we're engaging also actively observers on the study, which include National Grid, ESO, um, NGET, Offgem, and Bayes. So you know we intend this to be a dialogue rather than you know a, an industry lobby group. We we are genuinely trying to find a good answer for all concerned.
0: And we generally find on these multi-client studies that not everyone has the same perspective. And we have here people representing all sort of different types of generator flexibility, you know, less flexible, I could say, you know, the the generation side, demand side, etc. So
1: it's a broad spectrum. It, it is a broad spectrum. My only concern with the conclusions we're coming to so far is that because of the need to radically transform the system to 2035 we're looking at sort of supported investment both for renewables and for capacity or capacity and flexibility doesn't leave a lot of room for markets and forward markets and people taking their own views on the future and that that's my residual doubt about the models that we're coming up with but i think in the need to make such a radical transformation so quickly i think takes you to that whether it's an enduring answer is another question but that's perhaps a subject for another day
0: yeah another day well thank you very much and uh, this is the last in the series uh, this series of the fueling the transition podcast it will be back shortly i am sure i think with a focus on all things flexible so look out for that and thank you very much for listening again goodbye